All right, good morning. I'm glad to be here. This is my first Sunday preaching as your pastor, and I'm honored, I'm humbled by this great responsibility. And I pray that the Lord will allow me to preach and pastor here for many, many years to come. So today will be our, my first sermon, first Sunday in our sermon series through the Gospel of Matthew. And typically, I will preach uh, verse by verse through the book. Uh, today's sermon will be a little different than most, uh, because Matthew 1.1 is different than all of the other verses in Matthew. Um, I think that Matthew 1.1 serves as a title of the whole book. Uh, it gives a summary of what we're going to read about over the next couple months in Matthew. Namely, that Jesus is the Christ. He is the son of David. He is the son of Abraham. So today we're going to do an overview, look at different portions of Matthew and in the Old Testament to see how Jesus is the Christ. What does it mean that Jesus is the Christ? So in sum, we'll see three main things today. Number one, Jesus is the promised Christ of the Old Testament. Number two, Jesus is the Christ, the divine king and teacher. And number three, we'll see how Jesus is the Christ, the prophetic sacrifice. So knowing what it means for Jesus to be the Christ should cause us to stand in awe and worship of Him. It should also cause us to live our lives differently, namely lives that serve the one true King, King Jesus. So as you turn to Matthew 1.1, I want to tell you about a preacher in the 19th century in Scandinavia who on one Sunday morning, maybe much like today, he had his sermon prepared in advance, and he heard while he was going up to the pulpit that the king of Scandinavia was going to be in the audience among the congregation. So he was very nervous and excited. He wanted to please the king of Scandinavia. But he threw away his sermon and just spent his 30 minutes or so telling how good the king was, saying how good the king's actions and how he was so good. Well, um, he thought he was going to get some big reward from the king of Scandinavia. But uh, a couple weeks later, he did receive a big box, a big crate. And he, was, he, opened, he opened the crate, and inside it was from a gift, a gift from the king. It was a crucifix. It was a cross. And he said, why do we, I, I, we have a whole bunch of crosses in the church. We don't need another cross. And then there was a letter from the king. And uh, the letter contained the king's instructions as to the placement of the crucifix in the church. It was to go on the wall of the church opposite the pulpit. So when the preacher would be preaching, he would be rem reminded of which king he should be speaking he should not have been speaking of the king of Scandinavia, but instead he should have been speaking of the king of kings, Jesus the Christ. So let us not make the same mistake by placing someone or something on the throne that only Jesus deserves. So in Matthew 1.1, we read, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So let's first Look at what Christ means in the Old Testament. So first, Christ is not really a translation of the Greek, Christos. It's a transliteration. 
And some translations you'll see have Messiah there, Jesus the Messiah, which is not really a translation either. That is a transliteration of the Hebrew. Now, my Hebrew is not as good as my Greek, so grace. Um, Meshach, all right, Meshach. And in the Old Testament, the word Christ is the same word as the Messiah. So if you have Christ, Messiah, that's the same word, Christos in Greek, Meshach in Hebrew. And is usually translated in the Old Testament in English as anointed one. So as in anointed symbolically with oil. The ones who are anointed are usually kings, priests, and prophets in the Old Testament. For example, uh, for Aaron was anointed as a priest in Leviticus 8. Saul was anointed by Samuel as king in 1 Kings 10. And David was uh, anointed in 1 Kings uh, 16. Uh, Elisha was anointed as a prophet in 1 Kings uh, 19.16. Then in Psalm 2.2, we see a glimpse of the anointed one, the one to come who is God himself. It says, "The The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one, or the Christ. Uh, we see in the Amplified Bible version, he, they really amplify this verse up here. It reads, The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. And then in parentheses it says, Who is this anointed one? He's the Davidic king. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. So they amplify that out. They just want to make sure you're, you're, you know who this one is. So when the original audience of Matthew's gospel heard Christ in Greek, they would have known Matthew was referring to God's promised king in the line of David, the Messiah in Hebrew. While Jesus is the ultimate anointed priest and the ultimate anointed prophet as well, Matthew's focus here is on his role as the ultimate anointed king because he points out how Jesus is in the lineage of David in Matthew 1.1. Jesus Christ, the son of David. And then in Matthew 1, 6, Matthew emphasizes Jesus' kingship again, for he calls David King David, which is really overdoing it, because if you were a Jew in Jesus' time reading the Old Testament, hearing the Old Testament read, David is the king. You don't need to know that David, you you wouldn't have to put that modifier there. But he was the human king of Israel, the maybe best the, the king, human king. Now in Jesus, we have fully God, fully man, the king of Israel. And not only the king of Israel is Jesus, he's the king of the world. And so we'll see uh, one of these important uh, prophecies in the Old Testament about the king, the divine Christ, the king in the lineage of David, is in Isaiah 9.6. It says, For a child will be born of us, A son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast, and his prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. Jesus will reign on the throne of David. He is the son of David, the king that has come. And for Jesus is not just the king of Israel, but Matthew also emphasizes that he will be king of the whole earth. Look back in Matthew 1.1. Because Jesus is called the son of Abraham. Now how does Jesus being called the son of Abraham depict him as the king 
of the whole world. Well, the promise to Abraham in Genesis 22:18, in which God promised Abraham that all nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring. So Jesus fulfills this prophecy, for he came to offer salvation to anyone who believes. All nations will be blessed through him. And then in Matthew 28, 19, at the end of Matthew's gospel, we see that he commissions us to make disciples of all nations. For he has been given all authority, and he is the promised king of the Old Testament. So just from the Old Testament alone, we've already seen how Jesus is proclaimed to be the ultimate king of Israel and the world. Through the titles Christ, Son of David, Son of Abraham, this knowledge of the Old Testament is key to correctly understanding who Jesus is. And I want to point out a lesson from history on this point about the importance of the Old Testament. There was once a man named Marcion who lived way long ago, right after Jesus' time in AD 85 to AD 160. He was an important figure in the early church, but important for the wrong reasons. Um, Marcion preached that the God of the New Testament was a different God than the Old Testament, which is certainly not true at all. Marcion studied the Old and New Testament and concluded that Christianity was an entirely, entirely opposed to the Old Testament. Thus, instead of the 26 books of the New Testament, which we have in God's Word, the New Testament, he chose certain books and parts of those books which fit his theology, which fit what he wanted to believe. So which he came out to only 11 books of the New Testament. And notably, Marcion kept the Gospel of Luke, but only a shortened version of it. Guess what he cut out? He cut out the elements relating to Jesus' birth. Hmm, I wonder why. Because it connects him to the Old Testament, which shows us that the Old Testament is not contrary to the New Testament. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. Thankfully, we had people back in Marcion's time, such as Justin Mar Martyr, Irenaeus, Tertullian, that stood firm on the truth of the Bible, and he, they denounced Marcion as a heretic. So how do we apply this knowledge today? What do we do with the Old Testament? Well, we don't throw it out. We don't throw it out like Marcion did. We keep it. We are people of the whole book. New Testament, Old Testament, every book, we don't throw books out or verses out that we don't like or that don't fit our theology. We need to be the people of the whole book. So we have learned from the Old Testament that Jesus is the promised king to Israel and to the whole world. Now let us look at how we can learn about how Jesus is the Christ, the divine king and teacher in Matthew. So the word Christ occurs 16 times in Matthew. Some translations, like I said, translated as Messiah. What does this term mean? In Matthew, we learn, for instance, that the people of his day understood this title to mean king. Look in Matthew 2.2, where the Magi asked King Herod, Where is the king of the Jews? The Magi understood that Jesus was the king of the Jews. And Jesus is more than just an earthly king. For the Magi sought to worship him as God. For Matthew 2, 2 says that the Magi came to worship Jesus. Jesus is the divine king. He is the God king that deserves worship. Now in the next verse, Matthew 2, 3, we see how an earthly king, King Herod, was upset 
when he heard about Jesus, another king possibly coming to take his spot. So in Matthew 2, 4, Herod wanting to get rid of this king, King Jesus, Herod asked the chief priest and the scribes to find where the Christ will be born. See what happens there? So the Magi come and ask King Herod, hey, where is the king of the Jews going to be born? And he says, let's go look for the Christ in the Old Testament. So Herod knew that the Christ and the king were the same person. And that's why he asked the chief priests and the scribes. They apparently knew the scriptures better than he did, which is a kind of a sign of a bad king, uh, to look for where the Christ would be born. And so not only is the Christ pictured as a king in Matthew, he is the divine king for the Magi tried, attempted and went to worship him. We also see Christ's divinity, his godship, in Matthew 16, 16, when Peter connects Jesus as the Christ with this title, Son of God, Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah. You are the Christ, the Son of God, the Son of the living God. See how Peter connects the Christ, Messiah, with the Son of the living God? These two titles are to the same person. And again, at Jesus' trial, Matthew 26, 63, the high priest connects Jesus as the Christ with the title Son of God again. And the priest understands these terms Christ and Son of God as referring to someone divine, God himself. Because the priest asked Jesus, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus answers 2664, you have said it, Jesus told him. But I tell you in the future you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming on the clouds of heaven. So Jesus affirms his identity as Christ. The priest asks him, are you the Christ? Jesus says, you say that I am. He also goes on to say, I'm, he is the son of God and calls himself the son of man, seated at the right hand of power. All these titles depict Jesus as God himself. For look how the priest responds. Look how the priest understands this in 2665. The high priest tore his robes and said, he has blasphemed why do we need a witness? See, now you've heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? They answered, he deserves death. The priest understood that Jesus was claiming to be God. As one commentator notes, Jesus' blasphemy consisted not in a formal misuse of God's name, but in claiming for himself a unique association with God sitting at his right hand. So thus, the Magi, King Herod, Peter, the chief priest, understood that the term Christ to be connected to the divine king, God himself. While they all understood the significance of the claim to be Christ, not all of them believed. Not all of them worshipped Jesus as the Christ, the divine king. Will you respond today in worship of this one true king like the Magi? Or will you reject his kingship? so that you can be king like King Herod. So ask yourself, is Jesus my king? And listen, you can't have more than one king. Okay, As Jesus says in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters, two kings, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God Fill in the blank. Here, Jesus says money. Can't serve both God and money. But for you, it might be money. 
Who or what do you bow the knee in servitude? Money, comfort, selfish desires, entertainment, food, a a particular sin. Anything you place in a higher priority than Jesus is your master. Jesus came to free you from your old master of sin so that we can walk in newness of life, a child of God. Worshiping and following Jesus alone. So don't wait. Flee from the master of sin and run to Jesus, who is perfect, who is good, who is the loving king. So we've seen how Jesus as the Christ is the divine king, God himself. Let us look how the Christ is the instructor, the teacher in Matthew 23.10. Matthew 23.10 says, You are not to be called instructors either. And there's Jesus, Jesus teaching here. You are not to be called instructors either because you have one instructor, the Messiah, the Christ. So Jesus understands that the Messiah is the ultimate divine authoritative teacher. His teaching is authoritative and true. So since Jesus is the true and great kingly teacher... We should listen and obey his teaching, for he is the perfectly wise king whose decrees bring life. Second, don't misunderstand that this doesn't mean we can't call our Sunday school teachers Sunday school teachers. <laughs> what Jesus is pointing out here, he's, he's condemning any effort to use spiritual leadership or instruction to grasp power or achieve status. So as your pastor... I am the under-shepherd to the great shepherd, to the ultimate shepherd, Jesus, as 1 Peter 5.4 and Hebrews 12.20 calls Jesus. I'm also the under-teacher. Jesus is the ultimate teacher. I'm here to explain and apply his teaching, the word of God, to the best of my ability by the grace and power of the Holy Spirit. This also applies to Sunday school teachers, other teachers in the church, We are not to use our roles as teachers of God's word to glorify ourselves or achieve power or status for ourselves. We are all here to serve and love one another, putting the other's needs before our own and building others up in God's word, not our own. So we've seen that Jesus as the Christ reveals his identity of the divine teacher and king. Now we will look at the last depiction of Christ, the Christ as the prophet and sacrifice in Matthew 26, 67. And when we come to this passage at the end of Matthew's gospel, it is a sad depiction. But yet in God's plan of redemption, Jesus, who is the Christ, the King, the Son of God, God himself, the great kingly teacher, he was rejected by his people. The ones he came to save rejected their king. So Matthew 26, 67, we see the mocking and disrespect of our great king. After he is sentenced to death for affirming that he is the Christ, the people spat in his face and beat him. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, Christ, who was it that hit you? After recovering from the shock and mocking of of that passage, 
the disrespect, the injustice of this treatment of the king of the universe. Notice how they mocked him by saying, prophesy to us, Messiah, Christ. It seems they connected the idea of Jesus claimed to be the Christ with the ability to prophesy. In this case, specifically having knowledge of something that would have been impossible to know by normal human means. In some ways, these words should ring as ironic, since Jesus really is the great prophet. For he knew that the people were going to reject him. He prophesied that he would suffer, as we see in Matthew 16, 21. From then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes. Be killed. But the good news, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, he'll be raised from the dead on the third day. Jesus knew he was going to suffer. But because he loved you and me, he went forward, willingly suffered so that we could be saved. We see the pinnacle of Jesus' suffering in Matthew 27, 22. And we also see the devastating effects of sin in the world. When the people declare that the king of the universe should be crucified. Matthew 27, 22. Pilate asked them, what should I do then with Jesus, who is called the Christ? They all answered, crucify him. Then he said, why? What has he done wrong? But they kept shouting all the more, crucify him. So an observation of this heartbreaking event. Jesus, the king and God of the universe, shows his sacrificial love and grace to sinners. Jesus had all the power, all authority to escape, and not only escape from the hands of his captors, but to bring justice on, on these people attempting to kill an innocent man. And not only an innocent man, the only innocent man that has ever lived. And not only that, but kill their one true king. But in his love for his people and his trust in his own father, he took the mocking, he took the shame, and he ultimately took the wrath of God on the cross for their sin so that they could be forgiven and live as royal subjects in his blessed kingdom, to serve and worship him as our one true God and King. And we can also learn from our great King's teaching. After all that Jesus did, the miracles, the teaching, living a sinless life, I was left wondering, how did this happen? Why did they reject him as their king? He's the perfect king that was promised in the Old Testament. We already saw that King Herod attempted to kill Jesus, presumably because he saw Jesus as a threat to his own throne. The people were spurred on to reject and crucify Jesus by the religious leaders of the day, the scribes and Pharisees. I think the Pharisees probably saw Jesus kind of like King Herod did, as a threat to their own thrones. John eleven forty seven makes this point. So the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the council and said, What are we to do? This man, Jesus, is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and destroy both our holy place and our nation. 
As one commentator points out, the Pharisees saw the holy place in the nation as their holy place, their nation. But it's not really theirs. It is God's holy place and God's nation. They were not concerned about glorifying God or the welfare of God's people. They were concerned about their own positions of power and prestige. So the question arises again for us. Who is your king? What do you value more than Christ? Are there areas of your life in which Christ is not king? Let today be the day you surrender to that kingship of Jesus.